Dotnet Rocks episode 921 with guest Matt Wynn. Recorded live Wednesday, October 23rd, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're finally on terra firma. Richard Campbell. It is good to be home. We have so much to talk about, none the least of which is our road trip. And Well, road, we've already done some, and we got more coming. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> we're in the so midst the, of it. I mean, have anything to say about UK and Ireland? They were both amazing. Awesome. Hey, so when much is, fun. When is this show being published anyway? This is uh, November 5th. All right. So we're in Sweden at this particular moment. So coming up here in just a few days, we're Next starting week. the the U.S. road trip. First leg of the U.S. road trip, the yeah. East Coast piece. We're, we have three legs. So there's too many dates to, to uh, mention here, but go to .netrocks.com and just, you know, click. it's right at the top, the road trip. Just click there and you'll see all of the places we're going and you can register. You definitely have to register to sign up. Come out and see us. All right. So do you remember that I had a uh, Nokia 1020? I do remember. And you weren't happy with it. It had problems. Yeah. You know what the problem was? What? Pebcac. You know what that is? Uh, the problem exists between the floor and the keyboard. The keyboard and the chair. Yeah. There you go. But in this case, it's the uh, thumb and the brain. I what think, were is... you doing? All right. So here's a tip, folks. If you're going to sync to your, let's say, your Google Mail which has been, you know, you've had for a long, long time. And let's face it, your inbox has thousands of emails and thousands of spam emails and all of that stuff in it. Who would do that? Don't sync to all of it. <laughs> hey, you know, you remind me, Windows Phone 7, when it first came out, would try and do that. Like it would try and grab every one of your Facebook contacts and make it into a contact, which is really bad when you've got 4,000 of them. Well, I have, you know, 5,000 Facebook contacts. Yeah. And I, there was no problem with that. It's the, you know, umpteen thousand emails that it tries to download. If you say, you know, the default setting for uh, syncing your mail is go back a month. Right. And that's where you should leave it. <laughs> and there's good reason for that. You don't need your entire mail history no. on your phone. And right? so if you're trying to get it all, that means your phone is slow, it's mowing down battery, and you're consuming tons of bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. So so um, basically, the strategy is that if you want to go search for an old email, just pull up a web browser and go right. to your Gmail account and search there. Do it that way. Um, so... Yeah, so I and, and the funny thing is I don't even remember flipping that bit, but apparently it got flipped and the thing just went into a complete spasm, tizzy. Nice. And uh it didn't come out. I had to do a, a factory hard reset. So how is it now, my friend? Uh, it's much better. Okay, that's cool. Did a factory hard reset and I waited the, you know, the standard 48 hours of spinning gears, whatever that's all about. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to like reboot it three or four times, and it spun gears all night. But anyway, but it, I read I read online. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it does things. Just let it go. Let it do it. Embrace reality. Whatever. 
Okay. All right. So there That's you go. That's funny. That's my story of woe, but it's actually a cautionary tale. Yeah. Don't sink to everything, kids. If you have a giant, giant inbox. Yeah. One month is all you need. There you go. Well, Richard, how are you before we start this thing? I'm just glad to be home for a week and knowing with all this other stuff coming up, this is it till Thanksgiving. Yeah. Or yep. U.S. Thanksgiving. I miss Canadian Thanksgiving right. again. Right. But uh, yeah, for U.S. Thanksgiving, I guess we'll get some quiet. Well, at least you're thankful to be home for a few days. Good to be home. Yeah. All right. Let's start it off with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, on September 17th of this year, the Connect team, the Connect for Windows team. And, yes. you know, I'm a Connect for Windows MVP, so mm-hmm. I really need to give them a shout out. They released uh, SDK 1.8. And to tell you what's new in that, the blog post is at tinyurl.com slash KFW, Connect for Windows, SDK 1.8. KFW SDK 1.8. Nice. And get this, you know what green screening is, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you stand in front of a green screen and then you can block it out with a chroma key. Well, the Connect does that without a green screen. What? Background removal. How? Because what it the? because it knows who you what you are and yeah. it can identify your body. It instead of removing the background, it sucks you out and then puts you wherever. That's amazing. Now, it doesn't look as clean as a well-lit green screen. Like, you can see a little fuzz around you and stuff. But come on. It's pretty cool. So That is awesome. Yeah, right there on the the blog post, there's four pictures of a guy, you know, in front of a a house in Europe and then in front of a bridge and then in front of some surfboards, in front of some fireworks. Yeah, background removal. All right. So... And then Connect Fusion, Tim Huckabee told us about. And, oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Fusion is the thing where you can just hold up the Connect and it scans a 3D object. You, you move it all the way around a 3D object and it basically gets a 3D, comes up with a 3D drawing of that. That's amazing. From which too. you can print out on a 3D printer or do whatever. You have a wireframe, you have a 3D object. Huh. Yeah. Well, there's now a realistic color capture. So it's a new API that scans the color of the scene along with the depth information. Right. So it's just, you know, one step further. Uh, And also improved tracking and robustness. You know, those are just like new and improved features. Also, there's the ability, and this is kind of weird, but okay, the ability to view the Connect data, like the skeleton, in a browser. And all right, so here's okay. here's what you have to do. You have to download and install a little web server that runs on your machine that talks to the Connect. Right. And then your browser talks to that little web server. But it runs in the browser. That's pretty cool. But you you still have to download and install an app and it's only running on Windows. Okay. I've been talking to a customer lately who wanted to do stuff in the browser and you know the more and more the stuff that they wanted was more and more impossible in JavaScript. And I said, you know what? You're asking your client to download and install an app. You might as well just do it in WPF. Yeah, and that yeah. Was, that was where we went. So, Well, and that makes sense. I'm really excited about this whole – the combination of Fusion with, you know, Windows 8.1 comes with drivers for 3D printers. Mm-hmm. Like, we're getting close to the 3D copier. Oh, Yeah. 
Yeah, the replicator. Yeah, Star almost. Trek replicator. I mean, so material's not going to be the same, but the idea that I could have a 3D object, show it to my computer, and then it could make a copy, a, a, a replica of, simple of it things. is really kind of freaky. Yeah, of simple things. You know, now it's a matter of doing an analysis of what the thing is made of and then, you know, use the right materials and come close. All right. Well, uh, also, you can use multiple sensors with the Connect Fusion. Right. So you can simultaneously, with two sensors, scan a person or object from both sides, making it possible to construct a 3D model without having to move the sensor. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. It speaks to a strange new world, my friend. It's definitely weird. Well, that's cool. And then, of course, just a, another little feature, adaptive UI. So they have these different modes from uh, distance mode to near mode. And uh, adaptive means that the UI will switch, basically, and, and the mode will switch depending on where you're standing and or sitting. So that's kind of neat. All right. You can go from standing to touch, whatever. Interesting. There you go. Know it, learn it, love it. And that's at uh, tinyurl.com slash kfwsdk18. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 913. That's the one we did with Ms. Kim Tripp when we were talking about physical database design. Yeah. And Philip Nestigan says, uh, hey, Carl and Richard, I have to hand it to you. I think show 913 with Kim Tripp has got to go down as one of your best. I think quality product comes from the professionalism of using tools wisely and understanding what tools can do for you goes a long way. I have seen way too many companies that have gone down the path of using the neighbor's son. Yep. The son happens to know. You guessed it, access. Yeah. <laughs> and right. builds enterprise dreams on an access database in UI. Oh, yeah. Sure, it's cheap in the beginning, but when you see a few 300-column tables and no sign of an index, <laughs> you really have to wonder, what were they thinking? Not thinking, that's it. <laughs> Not knowing. And the code to overcome the mistakes only grows. Yep. I have been a developer for many years, and I do know my way around a database. However, by far the best products I have ever produced are those built with a team. DBAs working on the database, software developers working on the code, and testers to keep everybody honest. Yes. Yes. And I think that, you know, those different roles, they're not compatible in the same mind. You need different people to press against each other to actually make the best code. There's a little friction there that needs to happen. The friction forges better software. Uh, and Philip goes on to say, uh, one last thing. I listened to the Brothers album on Zoom. I mean, uh, Xbox Music. And it mm. was awesome. Oh, good. So there you go. That's Lifeboat and Nowhere, I presume. Yeah. So they're liking your music too, buddy. It's good stuff. What's not to like? There you go. Just saying. Philip, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those fine apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And this is a good time to talk about NDC London. Of course, the Norwegian Developers Conference in Oslo, Norway, we've been doing every year. Now they're coming to London. Yeah, I love the idea of Norwegian Developers Conference in London. That's pretty funny. But NDC Oslo is normally in June. This is December 2nd to 6th. However, the Guthrie is going to be there. Of course. And that's going to be epic. We're going to be there. And yep. all of your favorite speakers from North America and Europe are going to be there. The Skeet, the Connery, 
All of these great folks. The troublemakers. <laughs> and we're going to have our usual recording booth. We're going to be recording a ton of shows. The main thing I think a lot of folks know about NBC is they throw the most amazing attendee party. So it's December 2nd to 6th. And go to ndc-london.com. We'll see you there. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release over 40 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, still 200 minutes of access. A wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything Microsoft, including many courses on software practices. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Matt Wynn. Matt started programming in BASIC on the BBC Micro when he was about 11 years old and has been programming for a living since 1997. He's a lead developer on Cucumber Ruby, the open source tool for running executable specs that help bridge the communication gap between business stakeholders, testers, and developers. He's co-author of two books on Cucumber, the Cucumber Book with Aslak Helisoy and Cucumber Recipes with ENDs and Aslak Helisoy. Along with Aslak and Julian Bizimal, Matt runs Cucumber Limited, the company behind the popular family of open source tools that include Cucumber Ruby, Cucumber JVM, Cucumber JS, Cucumber CPP, as well as the Gherkin parser that powers Specflow for .NET. The company also runs a paid-for service called Cucumber Pro that offers a collaborative platform for teams using Cucumber. Matt's founder of the Kickstart Academy, which provides training and consulting to teams learning to use behavior-driven development, or BDD, and other advanced agile practices. He lives on the west coast of Scotland with his wife, two boys, two cats, and a few chickens. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome very much. Nice to be on the show. We have uh, talked about Cucumber many times on the show in passing, but thought it was about darn time we actually did a show on it. Great. I'm always happy to uh, to spread the word. Let's move from uh, test-driven development to behavior-driven development. And where does Cucumber fit in all that? Well, so do you mean, te uh, like, technically, what kind of a tool is it? How do you use it? Or you... Yeah, let's, let's talk about BDD in general first. So I suppose if you don't know what BDD is, um, it's a kind of evolution of test-driven development. Uh, it got introduced by, I think you had Dan North on the show, didn't you, a few weeks back? Um, and yep. Dan yep. came up with this idea, oh, I don't know, probably six or seven years ago now, I think, um, that changing the language about how we describe TDD actually helps people to understand the purpose of the activity a bit better. So if you talk about um, driving your uh, development around behavior rather than driving it from tests, because really the tests are just a, a tool that you use to help you figure out what behavior you want, right? Um, and then to you know prove whether the behavior is there or not. So um, just using that trick of language to change the language and start talking about defining behavior rather than defining tests just helps people to think a bit more about what it is that they're doing, what's the problem they're trying to solve, rather than you know how which particular tool are we going to use to write these tests and, and keeps people's heads in the problem domain rather than in the solution domain. Right, okay. And so where does Cucumber fit into this? Well, Cucumber's 
probably the most popular, um, biggest tool for writing uh, writing these tests in this style where you can actually share them with non-technical people. So, um, I mean, we've probably all worked on those projects where you have these requirement specification documents that some uh, business analyst on the team spends, you know, months and months of their life writing this giant word document that nobody else on the team ever reads and maybe they they're furiously right. trying to keep this this document up to date as the developers are actually writing the thing and you know it turns out that the that people want you to build something slightly different to what they'd originally written down in the requirements document um, and then mm. and this document drifts out of date and actually becomes a sort of dangerous um what does bob martin call them he calls them uh, something that something that we can't well, trust yeah. to, as a source but it's sort of like we we have to update after after we've uh, written the yeah. code I, I think bob martin says says this, so there's this, become yeah. a, a dangerous web of lies in fact the requirements documents <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah so uh so so aslak was uh working on some projects where you know you had these people who wanted to be able to read requirements documents and he thought well why can't we write something which can actually parse uh, uh the requirements document and execute it so he came up with this tool which could um read well it's, so it's a combination of people actually i don't want to give the wrong people credit but dan and dave astles and david chalimsky they came up with this uh syntax which has evolved over the years which is called gherkin now um and gherkin is this thing which sort of everybody probably it, it's the most recognizable thing of bdd is this given when then syntax for describing scenarios that the software needs to be able to satisfy so each one of those scenarios is an example of how you'd use the software for real and how you'd expect it to behave when you use it in that particular situation right and cucumbers the tool which can read those scenarios and actually execute them against your app and then give you some feedback about which scenarios are working and which ones aren't so really all we're doing is setting up some additional rules of the English language to uh, in, in some sentence structure that makes sense for humans and business people that can also be easily parsed by a tool to actually, you know, make what? What do we make out of this? Prototypes? Uh, not prototypes. No. So so all Cucumber does Specs. really is, is turns them in. I mean, in fact, uh, Specflow, the, the, the .NET version of Cucumber, turns them into an unit, I believe. I don't know whether there's an adapter for the Microsoft tests, the MS test stuff as well. I can't remember. But it generates um, what are effectively unit tests under the hood. So oh, for each scenario, there are actually n unit tests. So, we, so you can use all your standard test runners to run them and review the results and so on. Um, but equally, what you are actually working with when you're describing the behavior that you want is plain language. And this language is is a sort of standard agile language, isn't it? To, or sort of based on that sort of as a, you know, an actor type, I want to do something uh, which has an outcome 
Well, actually, that whole thing about the user story template is a, is a bit of a red herring. So yeah. um, I think the Specflow example, when you when you generate a new uh, feature file in Specflow, it comes with that sort of uh, text at the top of the file. But actually, that bit at the top of a feature file, you can write anything you like in there. You can uh, put a poem in there. You could um, put a link to a, a Jira ticket. <laughs> uh, which might be a bit more useful, or um, or a link to an image, um, okay. you, know, you know, some some diagrams or whatever that are relevant to the feature file. So it's just a place for arbitrary documentation. So what you're saying is you're really not limited to that. Um, that that is one way to use it, but you can essentially do whatever you like there. Yeah, in that in that in that particular part of the Gherkin document. Mm -hmm. And Cucumber basically just closes its ears and ignores you until you mention the magic word scenario. Okay. And as soon as you have a line in that file that says scenario colon, then Cucumber pricks up its ears and says, oh, right, okay, you're about to describe a test case now, so I better start listening. And then each of the lines that follow that scenario become the steps in that scenario. So those are the things that it's then going to actually turn into concrete actions where it you know, pokes at your app, clicks buttons, and, and uh, looks to see what the outcome's been. The given when and then syntax. Yeah, 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 yeah. So those are the those are the steps of each scenario. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So can you walk us through a, a typical scenario so we can have some sort of context for a, a just some simple example? Well, context is a, is a good good word to use. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you think about well, so so it's kind of a boring example, but it's the, it's an example everybody's familiar with. You think about, um, and it's the one we used in the cucumber book. Uh, you you go to an ATM to withdraw some cash, right? Mm. So let's suppose we're writing the scenario that describes the positive behavior, the, the happy path case where I've got enough money in the bank and I can take some cash out. So you the first thing you you do is you describe what is the context. So the given step of the scenario sets up the context and sets, if you think about it, technically it sets the system into the state that you want it to be in for this scenario to happen. So the context here is okay. I have I have sufficient money in my account. So we could use a concrete example and say I have $100 in my account. So given I have $100 in my account, okay. that's kind of, that's what has already happened in the past. That's right. where we are right now. And then the... Uh, the action point of the scenario would be characterized with a when step. So now we try and do something to the system. So when I withdraw $50, that would be the, the action step. And then there's some kind of an expectation about what the outcome is. So I carried out that action in that context. And what's the outcome we expect? Well, then the machine gives me $50, right? Yeah. So given I have $100 in my account, when I try to withdraw $50, then I receive, then, then the machine gives me $50. But imagine we did that same action in a different context, right? So uh, given I have $10 in my account, when I try to withdraw $50, then the machine tells me that I have insufficient funds. Right. So those would be two different scenarios. You're carrying out the same action, but you're carrying out that action in two different contexts. So you get two different outcomes. And both of those are different different pieces of behavior. And of course, this, um, you know, when you're dealing with business people, this is the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, that they, that they want to define. How far into details 
uh, do, do does a business person get before you know they they say uh, you know I've had enough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, do you have like the do Just you have like the, the designers uh, <laughs> defining you know given that uh, I'm at the main menu uh, when I click the menu you know the file menu then the file menu will drop down you know what I'm saying I mean because <laughs> yeah, I can yeah, imagine yeah. you yeah. can get really so, overboard with this yeah yeah so so I mean there's two there's two answers to that question and one. Like I think the the first question you ask is like how much detail do business people want to go into? And the, yeah. I think the magic thing about this is that you can go into as much detail as they want to, because you're not talking about technical stuff. You're talking about yeah. behaviour. So it's not like you've started to say you know oh but I'm going to have to put an index on that database field so and, and that column in the database and then. Uh, we'll violate the primary key constraint if we try and put two of those in. You know, you, and immediately you start mentioning words like that. You see business people's eyes just glaze over because they don't know what you're talking about. But as long as you're staying in the problem domain and you're talking about examples of how the system's going to behave, right. that's their domain, and they feel expert and they're willing to stay with you and explain yeah. the way the system should behave. And so, really, this becomes a tool for the team to educate everybody better about the domain and i imagine and actually i've my experience now is that f from even though i go out as a consultant to try and help people learn how to use cucumber the tool better actually the majority of benefit teams are getting is from trying to write these scenarios together and as they're trying to write the scenarios together they're, they're just coming to a much better understanding about what the problem is that they're all trying to solve yeah, I was going to say that, that this must be a really great way for solidifying and making these, making exactly what they're trying to express gel in the business people's minds before, before they even, you know, uh, before they even start. Yeah. And I think you don't want to get back into that, like, bad, yeah. bad old days of trying to write down every example for a six month project before you get started, right? That would be pretty crazy. Right. But equally... Um, how many, you know, agile teams get halfway through a sprint and then realize that a story is way bigger than they anticipated because they hadn't really done sufficient analysis on it. Yeah. And this is a really good tool to pull out when you've got a story which everybody recognizes is still fairly poorly understood and there's quite a lot of risk associated with it. And you can use this tool to help you to explore it and, and iron it out and actually quite often to split the story because once you start seeing examples of how you're going to use it in these different situations, you know, maybe you just say in that banking example, look, we're just going to forget about the whole uh, uh, class of examples that are to do with there being an insufficient balance. Let's just not worry about that right now. And and we'll defer that for a different story. And it helps you to, you know, set the scope of the story. But it, it strikes me that as you start to get into this, developers can get to work. You you get a set of stories together and now you don't have everything done, but you've got enough done that guys can start writing code and actually showing that they're they're running against your story successfully. And, you know, presumably yeah. you can stay ahead after that. So it's not like you build this great document and then development starts. No, you only need one scenario, right, to get going. As soon as you've got one scenario that everybody's agreed on, that's that's a failing test. That's some behavior that you can go ahead and implement. Now, the next thing that happens is they go back and want to revise that scenario, and therefore the tests now break and the code needs to be revised. Right, and, and you know, and conditions, adding conditions can break a scenario, right? 
Yeah, sometimes. Um, oh, usually what we find is that it's more a case that people are adding extra scenarios. They still want the, the existing behavior. They just want some other behavior too. And so having those old scenarios there helps you to make sure that while you're adding the new behavior, you're not breaking the old behavior with some you know technical work that you're doing under the hood. But yeah, I mean, well, so, I can sometimes imagine there would be a word unless, unless. So yeah, yeah. So you can say but. <laughs> yeah. So you can say uh, you can yeah, say given but. when and given when then and or but. All of those are sort of valid keywords in Gherkin. So yeah, any of those things can be stipulations right. you can make in the scenario. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so what, I can, what I'm saying is, I I'm thinking that you know if if uh, a simple scenario was coded not coded but you know started work being worked on and then you know it was changed because of some new condition that says you know well this is actually true unless this is also true in which case you know it's just a a branch of logic really you know then that affects that that scenario so there there are while it's true that you do have these sort of granular truths that get resolved you know um sometimes uh, these conditions can come along well you know completely outside of control you know uh hey uh healthcare.gov perfect example right you know um uh you you set up a policy and then uh, everything gets coded to that policy and then you know the lawmakers make a deal and the uh, or something like that and oh no some new law comes along and now it has to be modified yeah so so and this is the this is the kicker actually this is the kicker actually I think for for teams that have been doing this for a while is that they what they find is that now we have this documentation that describes the way the system behaves today which anybody on the team can read and yeah. we can trust it because it just got tested by the build 10 minutes ago. And that's a really powerful thing to have. Right. It's not a document. Yeah. It's not a document that we may or may not have coded to and may or may not be idealistic. Uh, yeah. It, it's reflective of the software. I get it. Yeah. 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 But I also like the idea that you change. How many times have we had guys say, I want you to make some changes here. I wanted to do this, this, and this instead. And they presume that's trivial. To actually code that in Cucumber and see how many mm. tests yeah. it breaks, how many problems that are, you know, you could, you sort of a manifestation of the work that's just been created by those new requirements. And actually, right. I've seen that happen with new requirements too, that um, something which, which seems simple to a business person that, you know, they have an idea and they, they want to achieve this goal. And then you kind of push back to them and say, well, okay, but imagine this scenario, what should it do in this scenario? Or, and then what about this other scenario? What should it do here? And suddenly they can see the complexity of what they're asking for. I love it. Kind of much more plainly than if you were going back to them and just kind of going, yeah, but that's going to be really hard. You know, I can just tell that's going to be really complicated. That's going to take me days. Um, but you can't explain why. And if you can explain that there are lots of permutations and lay that out for them, then they can sort of get a bit more of an appreciation of of the complexity of what they're asking for. Maybe better than, you know, if you're giving them uh, planning poker story points. I think that's a I think that's a 13. Well, a lot of business people don't really don't really necessarily understand why why you're saying a 13. But if you can give them examples and feedback to them like that, they can they can sort of get more of an appreciation. 
I like the idea that the guy who's writing the requirements starts defending the complexity of a change because these he's got these thousands of statements that are all running right now and recognizes yeah. based on this change it affects here here and here like how how many things are going to break yeah. yeah yeah it's also really good for sort of highlighting conflicting requirements as well you know where they they they, uh, they want wanting to do one thing but they also want it to do something else and. Uh, that never the twain shall meet. Right. But that sort of begs that question. Can Cucumber detect a circular or deadlock requirement like that? Right. Logic that cancels each other out. No, no. But I mean, obviously, you'd never be able to get both of those scenarios to pass at the same time, right? So you'd, you'd get alerted to it pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I fix it so it works on this one and it makes this yeah. other one go red. <laughs> That's what I they love call black a mole isn't it? Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to avoid cucumber jokes at all costs. <laughs> no cucumber jokes. My cucumber jokes come wrapped in plastic. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> you're not doing it. Nope. I was gonna. Nope. You're not. Nope. You're a better man than That's me, Carl right. Franklin. My wife is listening. There you go. No, no, no. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And that's everything that Telerik does in one box. $2,000 value. But before we do that, I need to tell you that Telerik Icinium enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. And the new release of Icinium will allow .NET devs to utilize all of the Icinium platform capabilities from within Visual Studio. Nice. The capabilities include comprehensive backend as a service, integrated support for Kendo UI as well as jQuery mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities, making Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. It all runs in the cloud, folks. Telerik Icinium with its new Visual Studio extension is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icinium with support at Icinium.com. That's I-C-E, ICE, just think ICE, N-I-U-M.com slash D-N-R. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Our winner today is... Carl Monig. Congratulations, Carl. Golf clap for you, sir. A round of applause. Nice. Of and applause. some clappers. Yeah, and the clapper. Oh, and it's the first show we've done in the studio where we actually can clap again as opposed to having 500 people in the room screaming. <laughs> Somehow it's more fun with 500 people screaming. <laughs> it was screaming. a lot of fun, wasn't it? Well, yeah, we ought to get the, like, the, the, the Manchester crowd screaming and oh, just play that every time we have a winner. I think yep. that's what we'll do. Those guys are loud. They were loud. <laughs> All right, and we're also giving away one of my CDs, Been a While. This is uh, an album that I did. John Schofield plays on it with me. It's good stuff if you like Steely Dan, the Eagles, good funky tunes and good writing and harmonies and horns and all that. That's at carlfranklin.com. And the winner today is John Starr. Congratulations, John. Another round of applause for John. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show we give away stuff. At least we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. But you got to be a member to win. And we like to ask our guests, 
Matt, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Well, I just bought a very nice Volkswagen van, and it's a brand new van, and so it's not a, an old bus, but uh, I'd like it to become an old bus. So I'd like it if in 30 years ah. somebody's still driving this thing around and camping in it. So the next thing I want to buy for this van is I want to buy a pop-top roof. Uh, so does that count as a gadget? Uh, I know you can get electric ones. You could get a whole bunch of plastic stick-on flowers, too, in multicolors. You know, that would be great. <laughs> Some big purple daisies on the side. Yellow. Definitely. You know? Ah, I think, sure, why not? You know, hey, it's it's not really high-tech, but it's tech. <laughs> uh, you know, what about a 3D printer, maybe? Yeah. Well, I could, if I got a 3D printer, then I could print my own pot roof, couldn't I? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I could print a van. So they're still making that van, are they? That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right, we got to dive back into this. Do I have to know Ruby to do cucumber? Well, no. So uh, we did start out, I think, it, yeah, it started as a Ruby tool. Um, but we've done this, Aslo has done this amazing thing. So the parser, which reads the Gherkin files, generates uh, code, a par- generates parser code in Ruby, in C. So there's a faster C extension for Ruby, in Java. So there's a native JVM version of Cucumber as well, and in uh, JavaScript and in C Sharp. And so the exact same um, parser, so the same Gherkin feature files, you can run those with a Cucumber that runs on any of those platforms. And that means that the glue code that you write, which which like interprets the, the plain language in your scenario and turns it into concrete actions against your app so you know when i withdraw 50 dollars, if your app is written in c sharp and you want to write c sharp code to simulate the withdrawal of the of the cash from the atm um then you just use the uh the dot net version of cucumber and it's the same you write the feature files in exactly the same syntax but you use c sharp to write your glue code and i noticed somebody's asked us a question about this on twitter yes uh, is why is the why is the C-sharp version called SpecFlow and not uh, Cucumber.net? Right. And uh, it's interesting, that actually. So uh, TechTalk, uh, the company who sponsor uh, Gaspar, who's the, the lead developer of SpecFlow, um, so he, he works for, at least I believe he does. Last time I met him, he was working for TechTalk. They're an Austrian company. And they did a lot of research, and they reckoned that the tool was likely to get more take up in the .NET world if it had a more kind of sensible name. So Cucumber is obviously a daft name, a really ridiculous name, but in the Ruby world, certainly, um, daft names are kind of, they're the normal. Uh, Everything's got a stupid name, right? The The XML parser in Ruby is called Nokogiri, which is the Japanese word for cha- for a very sharp saw. Um, so it's all, you know, everybody's kind of used to that. But I think maybe uh, the .NET world isn't so used to that. And they wanted to make sure that it was a you know, successful product. 
Right. Um, so they decided to use a, a name that was more kind of descriptive of, of what it is rather than um, just sticking with the, the sort of wacky open source name. What do you guys think about that? Was that a good choice, do you think, or is that? Oh, hell if I know. Yeah, I don't think it's that big of a deal. You're still writing in Gherkin and yes, yeah, I mean, it's, as far as as far yeah. as anybody's concerned, it may as well be called Cucumber.net. It's just that the, the Tech Talk decided yeah, that right. it would be a more successful product if it had that name. It's, at least that's my understanding. It's just a moniker, after all, right? You know, it's really just something that you can remember remember it by. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it was necessary, but I don't think it hurts anything either. Well, only that it adds a little bit of confusion. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And and yeah. I think now you know the idea was that it wouldn't because when you when you see the name Specflow, you get more of a sense of what the what the tool's actually for. Whereas you need to know what cucumber is, otherwise it just sounds like a sounds like a silly vegetable name, doesn't it? But it but cucumber has a lot of traction though, mm-hmm. and you you know pretty much either know what cucumber is yeah. or you don't. You know. Yeah. Now, now, then, yeah, I don't know. But you know, I also think that the Microsoft community, the .NET community, has evolved a lot. I think they're more – a few years ago, I think this was a more compelling argument. Maybe. I think today, it's yeah, what are we talking about, right? We're, we're all living somewhat in the open source world. I think we've never been closer. Folks doing web development, this is just reality. Yeah. So – I think it's. I think it makes more sense that we'd all just be cucumber now. Yeah, I'd lean that way. Uh, I'll, I shall mention it to Christian next time I see him. <laughs> and our opinion, plus five dollars will get you a latte. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What do we know, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm curious, uh, Matt. Just your view on the Ruby community these days. It it seems like they're all kind of grown up. Grown up. Are you intimating that they were not grown up before? It felt like a few years ago when Ruby really hit, it seemed like a fun, young playground. But, uh, you know, as would happen with every development tool, environment, and culture, as you start getting some code out there and software matures, the dynamic changes. I'm just curious if that's where we're at with Ruby these days. It's, it's interesting, actually, because uh, like some of the things about the Ruby community were were very mature from day one. So whereas I felt in quite a minority, so I, I moved over 2008, so five years ago, I felt quite in a minority in the .NET community as someone who wanted to practice TDD at the time. Most of my peers didn't didn't really know, weren't that interested. The tools were there, but most people didn't seem to want to work that way. Uh, when I moved to Ruby, that was the opposite. Most people were doing TDD. And that was one of the reasons I was drawn to you know, that, that community. So in that sense, I'd say there was more maturity there at the time. But one of the things that is kind of odd about the Ruby community is, is there's, there's this there's been this historically this this real kind of resistance to design patterns so uh, i think part of the the culture around rails was this idea that we were kind of you know throwing off the enterprise shackles of uh, these f- fat frameworks like spring where everything was configured in xml files and you know because we're in ruby now so we don't need all that baggage and right 
actually, I think that what happened was there was that they threw the baby out with the bathwater to some extent. And as people's apps have got bigger, they've realized that there is still some of that stuff that's really important. And I think in the last three or four years, the Ruby community have been really rediscovering a lot of the design pattern stuff, which I think the .NET community have always been really strong on. So, you know, that's where I got schooled in in that kind of thing. And I always took that with me. And I actually really liked Ruby as a OO programming language because it's kind of, um, it's more expressive than C Sharp, I found. Like there's just a lot less to type to, to express a, a, a domain model. Right. Um, that was one of the things I enjoyed about moving to the language. And, uh, but I, you know, I took all of that design patterns culture with me and I found it very useful. But it, it sort of annoyed me that there was this, there, there was a bit of a stigma about that, that it was like somehow uh, enterprisey to be to be thinking about that kind of stuff. And I think that that kind of thinking has has gone away, as you say, as code bases have matured and people have realised that actually you do need some structure there. Um, so something I've done some talks about um, in the last couple of years is applying like the Alistair Coburn's hexagonal architecture kind of ideas to to rails code bases particularly uh, which isn't especially easy rails isn't really designed to help you to do that um but yeah i think it's definitely something that, that we're seeing seeing more of and plus all of the kids are moving over to programming on node nowadays aren't they so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's only it's only old farts like me left programming ruby now but what i like about that is i feel like uh we run away with these new ideas and new cultures. And then we sort of come back in and recognize we're just not all that different. You know, they, I, I think the antipathy that sort of built up for a while there between the enterprise developers and the new age developers, or you could compare that to .NET and Java or .NET and, and, and Ruby, or Ruby and Java. In the end, we're still trying to solve people's problems. And there's just not that much difference, mm. but the small differences are important. And I think they all make us better too. Yeah, and I think that um, the the when when people you know as, as these as time goes on and people move back and forth between these communities and ideas get pollinated back, um, I think that's that's when you really start to see these see things getting healthy. Um, I, so, like the the example I sometimes think about is I'm a snowboarder, um, but I grew up skiing. Uh, but I I was skateboarding in my teens and I picked up snowboarding and I kind of didn't didn't do a lot of skiing for quite a few years but um if you see what happened to skiing like in the in the last 15 years skiing had completely stagnated because the skis were straight and that's what everybody did and snowboarding came along and right. there was a huge amount of ingenuity uh going on in, in snowboarding there were all these crazy people uh starting to design snowboards all these crazy different shapes and they and they settled on some some things so if you uh if you use a snowboard it'll have a side cut so it has a it has a curved edge which means if you lean onto its edge it'll just follow a turn for you you don't really have to work very hard to make it turn you just lean onto the edge and then those those ideas went back into skiing and so now if you rent a pair of skis it's ridiculously easy to turn a pair of skis now to do a parallel turn which used to be really hard when I was a, a lad learning to ski, and now you just lean a pair of skis over and and they go the way you want them to go. And in fact, if you look at the stuff that freestyle skiers are doing now over, you know, kickers and things, it's way bigger and uh, crazier stuff than snowboarders are capable of. Yeah. But that 
pollination of ideas that's come back it wouldn't have happened without snowboarding having having generated that extra ingenuity so i think that's where it gets really interesting is when people are kind of moving back and forth and there's a need when you pull away like the snowboarders did Remember the conflict when Snowboard first came along? Because you couldn't yeah. put them on the same slopes. They moved differently. There was yeah. a huge stink about that. Like, there was really contention between skiers and snowboarders, even though they essentially were doing the same thing. Yeah. And then, but that distance also made them creative. Uh, they worked different kinds of slopes. They started playing with their tools. And then they, as that antipathy eased off and we found rules to let them play together better, they brought a lot of good ideas back and, and made the whole industry more interesting. I, I think it's a really great parallel, Matt. I really appreciate that thinking, that we we need that distance to do some innovation, but we also recognize that we inevitably come back and these best ideas coalesce together. Yeah. I think if there is a Demonos, the Demonos I'm starting to see more now in, in programming is the difference between people who um, – get absorbed in the solution and the thinking about how's this code going to perform and how am I going to structure this and what algorithm should I use here versus the people who can stay in the problem. So I think what the real essence of BDD is about is about helping you to stay in the problem domain for as long as possible. And um, I read a book recently. It's actually a Microsoft Press book by a guy called David West. Yes. Uh, it's called Object Thinking from back in the, uh, I don't know, it's about, is it is it a 90s book? Anyway, it's a few years old now. Yeah, I think so. Um, maybe, no, it's, I think it's mid-2000s. But in that, that book, he says, it's all about object OO programming. And he says in there, if you can model the problem domain well enough, the solution will just take care of itself. And I really like that idea that you really don't need to get too absorbed in thinking about what your solution is. What you need to do is really understand the problem and just create a good model of it. And that's a, a, a I think part of that 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 sort of different difference in philosophy, difference in in focus um, is what you see maybe in the in the kind of Demonos thing which appeared first between you know ruby young guns saying like we don't want to be enterprisey because actually they were they didn't want to be tied down with all of this solution baggage like the xml config files and so on they wanted to be freed up to explore the problem and rails is actually really really good at that like the early days of a project you can very quickly throw something together that helps you to work with your stakeholders and show them like you know is, is it like this is this what you right. want it's really good yeah, it's and it's, so what you're really doing is you're not writing the app, but you're exploring the problem domain. Right. But one way to explore it is to create a bunch of code. Yeah. It, the problem is that we end up ex taking that exploration and shipping it. <laughs> That's crazy talk, Richard Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they, I also like this idea that, you know, what is Gherkin but a language for exploring the problem yeah. domain? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. And, it, and I think it's really interesting. I, I, culturally, I see a lot of contention around the idea of I only want to deal with one language. You know, they, you've got C-sharp people who really don't want to program anything other than C-sharp. I think the guys over at Xamarin are feeding into that to let them do phone development always in C-sharp. Mm. But different languages are good for different things. Gherkin's really powerful for this thing it wants to do. And I think that we got to start valuing that more and more. These different languages have their strengths for different roles. Yeah, there is that. Um, there's that hypothesis, right? Uh, Worth Sapper, 
Will Sapper hypothesis about how the uh, the language which you speak um, affects the the way you think about the world. So, uh, and you you can take that hypothesis. Yeah, if you don't have a word for right. war, and if, if you take that hypothesis to into programming languages as well, then the programming language that you are used to solving problems in affects the way that you think about problems the way you think about solving problems affects the kinds of solutions that you design to problems and i think if you've had a breadth of different languages if you've seen different languages then that helps you to take a sort of broader approach to the way you solve problems in the particular language that you're working in because you've got a you know you've got a, a wider array of, uh, of of ideas to draw on mm-hmm. do you think a cucumber being what it is opens itself to even higher level higher level tools that will um perhaps write out the gherkin language maybe from speech or from other inputs well the thing that we're working on that you mentioned in the in the bio at the beginning is this uh tool for teams to use to collaborate on the specs so uh one of the problems that we've that i've noticed as a consultant going into teams that are using Cucumber is that they'll have great collaboration at the beginning and they'll write the feature files together and then they sort of disappear into version control and they go into developer land. And um, mm. I've been running a service for a few years called Relish where you can publish your features onto a sort of pretty looking website, which helps. <laughs> oh, man. Relish. Yeah. The, the, they go yeah, on yeah, and on. yeah, yeah. yeah. Chopped gherkin. <laughs> Take your gherkins, you put them in a food processor, put in a little vinegar, some sugar, and you got relish. <laughs> All right. Yeah, sorry. yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, that's okay. So that's a publishing mechanism. So you can go in there, you know. So if you're if you're in that situation mm-hmm. where like you're wondering what tests you're going to break if you want to introduce this new change, you can go into relish and search through your scenarios and have a look and try and figure that stuff out. But what Cucumber Pro is designed to do is to give you that, but plus when you see the scenario, then you can actually just press the edit button and change that scenario, press the save button, and that's going to send a commit into source control without you ever even knowing anything about what source control is. So as far as you're concerned, you're basically just using something that feels like Google Docs right. to edit this specification document. But actually, what you've got is a way for that to then interact with the developers. And this is a bit like, um, I don't know if you guys ever saw Fitness, uh, which was quite kind of the the generation before Cucumber, I suppose, for doing these kinds of specifications that anybody could read. And they were managed in a wiki, which is a really nice user experience for the business person. The problem is managing the versions. So when somebody makes an edit in the wiki, is that describing the behavior of, you know, and the test fails? Is that what? What about in production? Is it passing? You know, it's it's hard to know which version of the wiki corresponds to which version of the code. Whereas the nice thing with Cucumber features is they're checked into version control alongside the source code for the app they're testing. So yeah, it's an interesting evolution there, and, and makes the the fact that the that these statements are bound to tests that we can actually validate them in a rational way. I think is the most important thing. We want to really keep the two pieces together. Yeah, and pulling all of that together so you can actually see as a business person, you can see, you know, that the now this week we've got a new, another 20 scenarios passing than we had last week and uh, that kind of thing. I think I think that's really powerful stuff because 
you know, companies are spending a lot of money on uh, people coming in and doing training to learn how to do this stuff, uh, on uh, build infrastructure and, and time that developers are spending writing these tests. And obviously, there's a lot of benefit in having that there as a safety net for making sure that, you know, mistakes don't get through to production. But it's nice to have that kind of assurance actually really visible for business people so they can see this is the benefit I'm getting from it. Well, and also, what a great way to show progress. Yeah. You know, as stuff yeah. turns green. I like that a lot. Indeed. Yeah, so I'm really excited about Cucumber Pro. This is my main thing I'm working on at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting it out there and starting to get some feedback from real people. That sounds good. So please, everybody, go to cucumber.pro and sign up with your email address. So you can come and try it out. You can be on our beta list. And when do you think you're going to ship the first beta? <laughs> we i love deadlines and software right we're, we're committed to getting something out in the in the last quarter of this year we're committed all to right that. so we're working really hard yeah oh good great awesome well you heard it here so go do it hey listen matt thank you very much it's a great work and, and a great tool thank you very much guys thanks for having me absolutely all right we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.